Hello, and welcome to Recap, Per Capita's research and policy podcast where we examine inequality and unpack our latest work in our fight for a fairer Australia. We're coming to you from the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We are on land that was never ceded. I'm your host, Emma Dawson, Director of Per Capita, and my co-host this week for our premiere episode is the Director of the Centre for Equitable Housing at Per Capita, Matt Lloyd-Cape. Hi Emma, how are you? Well, Matt, how are you? I'm all right, yeah, I'm it's good. It's been a busy time. It's been a time, yeah. <laughs> Being a little bit like I've been hit by a truck, but yeah, it's been, it's been a good few months of work, hasn't it? It has indeed. Um, so seeing as this is our premiere episode, why don't we give you a little bit of background on what we do? Matt, why don't you share with us for a start how you came to work at Per Capita? Yeah, great. Um, so I came to Per Capita three years ago. Um, and prior to that, I was working at the Australian Council of Trade Unions as a, an international officer and a research officer. Um, so, yeah, my, over my career, I've worked in academia and with international aid NGOs um, and with the trade union movement. So that's been my kind of lens on the world has always been through one of, I guess, class struggle and uh, inequality, and that's how I sort of meshed in, I think, uh, with the work at Per Capita. <laughs> you did indeed, and I, I remember the day when uh, I read your application. Uh, we had a lot of interest in the position I originally hired you for, but you were a standout back then, and the obvious choice to head up the new Centre for Equitable Housing here uh, that we are launching this week. Yeah. Um, so what, what's, what's the centre all about, Matt? Tell us a bit about it, what we'll be doing, um, what we've released so far, and what the, what the work in researching current housing crisis across Australia is revealing to us. Yeah, great. Well, um, we originally set up the centre um, after doing some, we did some work on housing a few years ago. We were looking at um, the cost of housing and um, the cost of living, and we were trying to figure out different ways of understanding um, housing affordability and how it affects people's ability to um, have a decent life in Australia. And that led to some conversations with um, a, a philanthropic organisation called the VNF. Housing Enterprise Foundation, who are a philanthropic organisation concerned with the current state of housing in Australia and we're looking for new ways to uh, really explore some solutions. Um, so the Centre for Equitable Housing was kind of the brainchild of the VNF Foundation and yourself um, and me to a lesser extent and um, so that's really been uh, a great opportunity for me because I think there's no other policy area um, other than housing that I can see that really impacts the potential for somebody's individual outcomes in life, uh, but also societal um, outcomes and economic outcomes as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I think the reason we were so interested and found this meeting of the minds with VNF was, uh, you know, our core purpose is addressing inequality and fighting for a fairer Australia. And the lack of access to secure, affordable, appropriate housing is now a real problem for far too many in our community. We mm. are seeing in Australia a re-emergence of a two-class society, where unless you come from a family that owns property, you'll never form a family that owns property. Yeah, that's right. The, um, the intergenerational wealth issues are really coming to the fore. And I think people are really uh, seeing that in their sort of day-to-day -day life. Like, you might have um, gotten lucky and hit the jackpot and bought cheap, um, in the 80s, bought a nice house in the 80s and seen that increase by, you know, maybe even, you know, 
a few, a few hundred percent in value, um, but now you, your children might be sitting there on an insecure um, uh, job, uh, insecure employment, um, and be uh, unable to get into the housing market without significant help from yourself. So even the winners in society, I think, are starting to see where the problems are. And you know, we haven't even uh, discussed things like indigenous housing. You know, a, a fact that I always like to make is that only 30% of indigenous Australians own their own home. Mm. Um, and that's less than half of the average ownership rate. And you know, so the majority of indigenous Australians are renters in a land where they, their ancestors have been living for 60,000 years and acting as custodians and guardians mm. of the land. Mm. They're so renting the land we stole from them. From generally, mainly from <laughs> white people. You yeah. know? So um, there is um, a lot of different layers of inequality in the housing sector. And housing policy, we know that housing policy in the past has um, mitigated inequality in society. You know, you can you can assess poverty in lots of ways, but you have before housing poverty and after housing poverty. And in the past, because we had decent levels of social housing and we had um, mechanisms in place to mitigate um, the cost of housing for low-income households, we used to have after housing poverty rates that were lower than before housing poverty rates. Mm. Now that situation shifted, and housing is one of the major contributors to poverty and also to homelessness. Mm. And not only that, I think one of the, the, the reasons that we see the work of this centre is so important is that secure housing is really the basis for everything else. You can't get ahead in life if you don't have a secure roof over your head. Mm. Um, and this was an issue that both sides of politics recognised in the past. And we, we've talked about this, we're repeating conversations we've had many times in the office here, but uh, that in the, in the post-war era, both the Labor and newly formed Liberal parties were very, very committed to housing affordability. They took slightly different approaches. Labor was much more about building direct social housing. The Menzies government really put home ownership at the centre of its social policies. But what we had was a recognition that having a home was the fundamental prerequisite to building a good life. Yeah. And we've seemed to have lost that in the era of housing financialisation. That's right. And it's amazing when you go back to some of Menzies' speeches or Menzies' era speeches where you know, the Liberals would be crowing about how their uh, construction rates were so much higher than Labor's and there was almost a competition to be the party of home construction. And for Labor, yeah, it was more about public housing to provide social renting um, opportunities. For Menzies, he had a phrase um, which is they wanted to create little capitalists um, <laughs> by getting people into the housing market um, through subsidised housing construction that the state managed. And, you know, and the state built 15, 16 percent of houses between 1945 and 1990, say, mm. um, which is an extraordinary rate of construction. And these days, people don't really recognise that there even is a role, particularly for public housing construction, mm. in a lot of policy circles. Mm. And public housing construction rates are down to about 1.5 percent of current yeah. construction. And we're seeing that really play out now with the housing crisis across the country. Interestingly, and we'll get on to the actual work of the centre yeah. in a moment, but it's all important background stuff. Uh, you, you mentioned Menzies and wanting to create an, a, a nation of little capitalists. And I think it's interesting that in uh, the fallout from the Aston by-election, we're finally seeing some in the coalition government, in the conservative side of politics, say, oh, hang on. Uh, young people aren't voting for us. Why is that? Well, maybe it's because they've got nothing to conserve, so they're mm -hmm. not conservative. Um, and therefore, you know, they're actually starting to think, maybe driving this massive financialisation of housing and this unequal market 
is bad for us electorally. So that might be why they might start thinking about it again, returning to Menzies' theory that if people don't own anything, they're not going to be conservatives, they're certainly not going to be capitalists. Yeah, Yeah. if you haven't got a stake in the current arrangement, why would you want to protect it? Yeah, Yeah. and, and, you know, that's not what we're about. We don't want to create more little capitalists, but we do (laughs) want to create a fairer Australia. And any way anyone wants to come at this issue, I will welcome them uh, for joining the cause. Um, but let's talk a bit about how we kicked off the, the Centre for Equitable Housing. Um, and I'll just I'll just start by saying it's a new centre within Per Capita. Matt, Matt's the Executive Director. Um, and he, we also have Lucy Tonkin, who's the Andrew Harrington Fellow, working in that centre. And the rest of us at Per Capita sticking our noses in uh, where we can as well. You'll never keep me away from housing research very completely. Very <laughs> <laughs> um, But the first piece of work we decided to do, with the very generous support of VNF, is the Australian Housing Monitor. Uh, can you tell us a bit about the Monitor and why we why we just start, decided to start with a survey of community attitudes towards housing affordability and security? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think two of the well, two of the prongs of uh, of our kind of attack on this issue are firstly that you know we know that current trends are going to lead um, only downhill and towards the sort of slow erosion of that Australian dream of home ownership. Um, but also that the media debates around um, around housing affordability tend to just follow, not always, but often follow tropes, mm. which might be boomers versus millennials yeah. or uh, renters versus landlords. And these kind of tropes are easy to slip into and there's probably grains of truth in all of it. But ultimately, we didn't think that that was reflecting the richness of experience um, of the population in general. And so we wanted to really um, take a step back and start with uh, a very large survey of experiences and attitudes of Australians in the uh, housing space. Mm. So we um, worked with Essential Media on a large survey design. So we had around, well, just just under 4,750 respondents. Each respondent spent about 15 to 20 minutes filling out the survey, um, which gave us something like three quarters of a million data points. So it's a really rich, large-scale survey. And we asked questions on um, housing affordability, on opinions around um, uh, current policies in the housing market, um, on what people think would be um, best policy for resolving the housing crisis at the moment. Um, so we've got a really broad set of experiences and loads of demographic breakdown as well. So we, you know, if we want to find out about rural women over 50 who vote Labour, we can do that. If we want to find out about swing voters in the urban environment, we can do that. Um, so it gives us a really nice basis to have a look at where the, where the actual um, attitudes and experiences and conversations from the public are. And that will allow us to build um, policy ideas from. And also it gives an an idea of where the appetite for change is in society. Because I think we've discussed before, but um, on a lot of issues where we've seen major change in Australian society, whether it's um, marriage equality or voice, uh, all of these areas, they're often led by community support prior to political engagement. Mm. And we think it's the same um, in this instance. It's, in my view, as you know, definitely the same. I mean, per capita's theory of change is that uh, we we talk to the Australian people. It's not about closed door meetings in Canberra or Spring Street or Surrey Street. Mm. Um, it's about 
public narrative and often, funnily enough, in a democratic system, when the politicians think there are votes in something, they'll tend to do it. Mm. One of my concerns, and I know yours and, and those of uh, Hugh and Ondine at VNF for many years, has been that the housing conversation's been dominated by vested interests. It's been dominated by developers or by investors. At the other end of the scale, um, there's been a lot of um, advocacy from people in the social housing sector. But what we wanted to do with this survey was drill down some of those through some of those beliefs that, oh, well, people don't want their house prices to fall, for example, and see what people actually think, what they're really concerned about, and how widespread is this concern about housing affordability and accessibility. And it's massive, isn't it? Mm, absolutely, yeah. And um, I think it's kind of existential in, in some ways. So people really think that the possibility for um, new generations to buy a house is declining rapidly. Mm. and we can talk to some numbers. Yeah. Well, I think one of the key findings when the, when the report was released was 85% of people who don't currently own a home still want to, but only one in four of them now believe they will. Exactly. And that's a pretty pessimistic view for a whole lot of, a whole generation of people. Yeah. And, and, the, and the ways of getting there are narrowing as well. So it's not only about price and um, your ability to get a mortgage, but the bank of mum and dad is playing such a huge role as well. So we found that around 45% of um, our sample had received assistance from the bank of mum and dad in recent years, but number of people that think that they will rely on some sort of parental support is over 70%. Mm. So we're really seeing that you know people don't see a pathway to ownership without some existing capital from in their family. Mm. Well, that's yeah. sad, isn't it, that you, you need to wait for your parents to die before you can own a home. I mean, yeah. it, it shouldn't be a trade-off we have to make, should it? You can have grandparents for your kids or you can have a house for them to live in? No. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. Or, or ask your parents to downsize mm. or, you know, it's... Or it's dip really, into their super. Mm, yeah. And it's really uncomfortable to sort of suggest that that is the... Um, the route that we're creating for our, for our next generation of and it, it's not only uncomfortable it goes against I think certainly everything Australians believe about themselves as an egalitarian nation that mm. we're a classless society well there's nothing more class based than needing an inheritance to have a roof over your head that's right I mean I'm as you can tell listeners I'm from the UK and you know we have we still have hereditary lords we still have landowners that in own vast swathes of Mayfair and so on and you know you see what that results in it's a kind of you know we still haven't shaken off the shackles of class no. overlordship in the UK, no. and you don't want to re start re replicating that here. And in many ways, we're getting worse, right? We're, we're actually at a position now where we have lower ro rates of outright home ownership than the UK, which yeah. was unthinkable a generation ago. That's right. I mean, we're in the decline. We've gone from 70, over 70% 70 of uh, the population owning a home, yeah. and we're down into around 65%. Yeah. So clearly the current model we have is not working towards that dream that anyone can wash up on the shores of Australia, get a job, blue collar, white collar, it doesn't matter, um, and then work towards building, uh, building themselves a life where they get to have a little slice of Australia at the end of the day. Yeah. But the monitor is not just about home ownership, is it? We look, we've, we've taken a real deep dive into issues for renters because going back to that original figure, 85% uh, of non-homeowners still want to buy a home. That means 15% don't necessarily want to buy a home, mm. but they're not having a good time in the rental market either, are they? Yeah, so uh, we did drill down into a lot of different areas of um, the rental experience and rental affordability. So just as a, as a broad um, sort of issue, around 22.5% um, of the uh, renters said that they're constantly struggling to pay their rent and 4% said they're falling behind. So you know, it's quite a significant proportion of the population that are reporting being in some sort of rental stress. Yeah. Um, if you break that down by 
um, income obviously rises much higher. Um, so we, yeah, for low income families, we're seeing sort of maybe 30% um, in rental stress, mm. maybe more. Mm. Um, and then, yeah, so the rental side of, the, uh, in terms of rental stress, I guess we're not breaking new ground on that necessarily, but where we are is we're looking at things like um, quality of rental mm. stock. Yeah. So um, fewer than 50% of the population have adequate heating and cooling in, yeah. their, in their mm. rental property. Um, and as the effects of climate change bite, that's going to become increasingly yeah, important. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that goes back to the way we build houses, which is throw them up cheap mm. and then eat the ongoing costs mm. with um, high heating and cooling costs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but then also things like um, damp and mould. We saw something like 15, 16% of the population of renters reporting damp and mould, which is you know, it's a significant share. Yeah, that um, was certainly my experience as a renter, I have to say. Yeah. Lots of black mould problems. Yeah. Um, and then things like getting um, repairs done by your landlord, mm. about 40% say um, that uh, repairs are done f fairly quickly. Mm. Um, interestingly, we, we asked landlords a lot of questions as well, and a lot of landlords say that they don't really prioritise fixing things in their rental properties. So it's very interesting, like actually um, renters report <laughs> that their landlords re uh, repair things at a faster rate than landlords themselves report. Mm. So yeah. I guess it's partly about expectations. I, I think one thing I, I really want to highlight with the work the centre's doing, and it's, it's evidenced through this initial piece of work, this survey, which is enormous, and if you go to uh, housingmonitor.org.au, you can access all the data that we have up there and you can play around with it yourselves. We're, we're not possessive of this stuff. We want to inform a public conversation, so do check Get it out. Find um, out. Find uh, some stuff that we haven't found yet. That's right. See what you can pull out of the data. We'd be, we'd be delighted to have some new perspectives. Um, but the important thing to emphasise is that we're not picking sides in a battle on this. The, the centre wants to look at all of the issues. And the original report we did with VNF about 12 months ago, uh, which was looking at housing affordability, we called it a wicked problem, because mm. it is. There's too much, I think, dispute in the debate between an economists who think it's all a supply side issue, that we should just build more houses and everything's fine. Yeah. And then those on the other side who say, well, no, it's a demand side issue, we've got too many investors, and we should just reform tax, and that will be fine. Mm. Um, we don't think any one of those things is a silver bullet, right? We think we need to look at the whole system of the market and ask, does this work as a market? Because in my view, it doesn't. Mm, yeah, I, I think it's, it's a really multi-layered and complex problem that often gets boiled down to relax planning regulations so that developers can fix the market. And yeah. we know that that doesn't happen, you know? Like, Mark, people in property development don't build houses below a certain profit margin. They're not into, they're not into it for and the goodness of their hearts. It's yeah. not an altruistic pursuit exactly. being a property developer, is yeah. it? <laughs> but we also know that, you know, it's not going to be solved by simply um, removing property investors either. You know, this oh. is something that will require, you know, it's a big, you know, if you mm. want a metaphor, it's like a big tanker that we need to turn around. Yeah. It's going to take a long time to turn it around because we've allowed this slide over 30, 40 years of increasing um, mortgage access for investors. Mm. Uh, we've uh, pumped a lot of more money into the property market because we've become a richer nation. Mm. We've condensed our population more and more into just three cities, mm. and those cities are not well suited to expanding because we have one CBD in, in Melbourne, mm. and that is a shocking state of affairs. Um, we don't have regional cities like comparable countries would have, like in mm. Britain, you've got Birmingham, mm. you've got Manchester. Mm. 
We don't have those second-tier cities in Australia mm. at the same sort of don't scale. Don't call Manchester a second-tier city, my friend. <laughs> you can tell Matt's from the south. It's, not, it's, not, it's, it's no London, mate. Go on. <laughs> I'm standing up for my, my <laughs> city of birth. But no, the point you make is real. I mean, it, it, is a, it is a wicked and multifaceted problem. And, and you alluded at the start to wanting to cut through some of those tropes that mm. dominate the debate, which I think is so important. Uh, there's too much, well, it's all those greedy boomers soaking up all the, the wealth or landlords are trying to rip you off and uh, actually people that have bought investment properties have acted in rational self-interest based on the market we've created and, and not just the market but the the um, like the definite signals that mm. we provide which is please do uh, buy please a do yeah, please if do. you've got extra money put it into property yeah right? don't put it in your super don't put it elsewhere we'll give you a better tax treatment mm. in your investment property yeah we'll let you write off your losses through negative gearing and we'll give you a capital gains discount at the end of yeah. the day. And so that's tied up, you know, ten trillion dollars in our in our property market. Sixty percent of bank profits are tied to residential mm. real estate. The opportunity costs for the rest of the economy there are significant as well, aren't they? Yeah, it's huge. I mean if you think about um, just the increase over the pandemic years was over three hundred billion dollars uh, increase in the, the value of Australia's uh, ten million mm. homes, right? Yeah. That's bigger than the entire ASX, yep. you know, the, the market capitalization of every firm yep. in the ASX. Yep. Uh, and that was in two years of growth. Mm. It's just mind boggling. Mm. And it just, it's just a huge amount of money to be sloshing around in the economy, yep. fairly unregulated, or in and my opinion, not well, not well enough regulated. And that leads to banks chasing that sort of return. Yeah. Um, because, you know, like you say, 60% of banks' asset sheets are based on residential mortgages yeah. now. And, 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 you know, extremely inequitably distributed. At the same time as that was happening, our survey shows about 1.25 million Australians have, have seen an increase in housing stress over the mm. same time. So there's a very unequal outcome, unequal outcome there. Yeah. I mean, we're, we're rewarding the incumbents and we're rewarding people who have access to capital. Mm. And that obviously doesn't doesn't really work with a nation that's based on an immigration system like ours, you know, which is anyone can come, establish themselves, set up a new life. It really flies in the face of the Australian dream. It really does. Um, so what we're trying to do with the centre is, as I said, uh, you, you want to really drive a bigger public conversation. Um, put some evidence behind the facts that get into the public debate and challenge some of those beliefs that are holding us back on political action. Mm, that's a good question. Yeah, so I think um, what the plan really is is to examine some of the major causes of housing system failure, um, the causes and effects and the, the timescales and interactions. Because the housing market is unusual, like it works in this very long cycle, much longer than the business cycle. Um, and we want to really identify some of the blockages um, to reform. You know, as you said, there's a lot of vested interests. One thing that the survey identified was that many, many people um, with a single property, a single investment property, their views were much more aligned to people uh, without any investment properties than they were to people with two or three. Maybe we can call them like professional investors. Yeah. You know, um, and the people that you hear about from um, the property councils. Cool. They're going to be representing mostly those more vocal, uh, high in you know higher leveraged, many more property kind of type investors. Yeah, like that guy on Brisbane Radio that had what three hundred eighty four investment <laughs> properties, and we were meant to feel sorry meant, for him. Yeah, at some that's point. right. <laughs> you know, so like the, the narratives coming out of the investment councils and uh, property investment councils will come from that extreme end where you've got ten or more property, investment mm. properties. And what we think is that there's a whole bunch of people, with, which is the majority of investors, who have a single investment property, 
But A, we found that they were willing to see, uh, or that nearly a majority of them were willing to see a decline in their investment property to help housing affordability, uh, and B, that they're you know, more uh, likely to, to vote for significant changes as well. Absolutely, and I think that's one of the more interesting findings and something we'll dive more deeply into down the track, because intuitively, and this is where I come in with my very unscientific opinions, intuitively you'd think, well, those so-called mum and dad investors that, that have just sunk a bit of a windfall, maybe when they've had an inheritance later in life, or maybe when they've had a bonus at work, and they've got into the property market with just a small investment property that they're renting out and hoping to supplement their retirement income. That's very different than someone that's very highly leveraged and has taken on a lot of debt mm. for multiple investment properties, and therefore any changes to the tax arrangements or to the regulation or to APRA regulations will really affect them because what we've done is create a market that supports their speculation mm. and their highly leveraged debt to build a property portfolio. Yeah. It's not necessarily serving those small investors who are the majority of landlords too. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And this relates to the problems with rental tenure, as you know, as we've talked about before. Uh, because so many of our landlords only have one or two properties, they're looking to realise a capital gain, they're unlikely to give longer term leases and more security of tenure. Yeah, that's right. So um, there is some research from uh, Longview, the company Longview, mm. and they um, have really identified that, um, well firstly, that you don't get a decent, you don't get a strong return on rental investment in Australia in terms of yields, mm. the rental, like the, the amount of money you get from the rent each month, mm. but you do get the return from the capital gains. Yeah. So a lot of people will be in the game of getting an investment property and maybe not making particularly any decent money off the rent, but they can offset losses through negative gearing. And then they realize their uh, investment after you know, four, five, six, ten years, whatever it might be, through capital gains. Mm -hmm. And, and they're only taxed 50% of, of their marginal tax rate on those capital gains. That's right. That's right. So, you know, that's um, $12 million a year or mm. so that we give out in capital gains tax discounting. Billion. Sorry, billion. <laughs> and on top of negative gearing, on, yeah. on top of negative gearing, we're looking at you're starting to talk about serious money after a 20, while. 20 billion maybe in, in a couple of years. <laughs> so right. enormous money. Um, and so, yeah, we're really, um, as you say, we're designing this market to, to suit a specific type of people, yeah. uh, but it doesn't help renters because you know if you're in the game of realizing a capital investment after a few years, you don't necessarily want to have a long-term tenant, um, and this is one, this is one of the big differences between the U.S. and Europe and Australia, which is that you have um, institutional investors or long-term housing investors in um, in America and uh, in Europe. And they're more concerned with farming the yield of rent. Mm. And they might get a quite a low return, but it's a consistent return um, year in, year out. Um, and so they, they're willing to have a tenant for 10 years. In fact, it suits them better to have a tenant for 10 years. Mm. It's less of the transaction cost of getting a new person in. Um, and that means you know, you, you're more likely to have a much more stable rental relationship. Yeah. Whereas in Australia, the average tenure is what, two, two years or so. Two, that's right, and, it's, and um, it's declining all the time. Yeah, in our survey, 15% of renters have moved within the last six months. Yeah. So it's a huge, huge turnover. And, that, and it's not just a, an individual cost, that's got an enormous consequence for the overall economy. It's mm. got this huge churn mm. of people having to constantly move, trying to find somewhere still close to their work, you know, they're taking days off work to move, all that kind of stuff. So um, it's not just a, you can sort of see it as a triple uh, threat to society, which is the individual cost, 
the social cost of you know constantly being unsure mm. of what's going to happen next and having to subsidise that, and then the economic cost as well. And what the data clearly shows is that even though 85% of non-homeowners, and that includes people still living at home with their families, with their parents, for example, but primarily renters as well. While that 85% still want to buy a home, we found that 70% of renters would be happy to rent long term if they could treat their property as a home, if they could put up a picture, have a pet, uh, you know, change the carpet as they can do in, in some European countries. Yeah. So not only have we removed the ladder of opportunity, as they call it, for those people to buy a home, but we've created a rental market in which they can't form a secure home either. So yeah. we're giving them no options at all. Yeah, and I think the, the sort of traditional way of viewing the Australian housing market was you live with your parents and then you rent for a few years while you save up for your deposit and then you buy a house. And probably that was true for like the everyone apart from the, the very poorest in society, yeah. the majority. Um, now that that's broken down, all the systems and laws and uh, regulations that we had in place uh, no longer fit, they're mm. no longer fit for purpose, right? And as you know, we've spoken before about how it was only in 2020 that Victoria legislated to have a flushing toilet in every rented <laughs> property. You know, it's real, real Victorian-level stuff. Pretty um, backwards. I mean, Victorian is in the era rather yeah. than the state. It's um, like other areas of, so of social and economic policy, right? Like, as you just said, our, in, our whole ecosystem is based on the idea that people rent for a few years in their 20s and then they buy a house. It's a bit similar to the rate at which job seekers set, which is the assumption that you're going to be on unemployment benefits for a few months mm. as a young person in a share house until you get a job. Whereas we now know that the, major the biggest group on job seeker are people over 45. Yeah. Um, so we've got sort of uh, laws and regulations that are set for the Menzies era. Yeah. <laughs> and we're, we're living in a, in a time when those regulations have been left in place and the market has been encouraged to expand beyond the scope of those regulatory um, restrictions. And we've really created a mess for everyone that isn't in the top 10 or 20% of income earners. Mm. Which I think is a really good point to pivot towards um, what people want to do, what we, what we found in the survey mm. about what people want to do in solving this situation. So I guess the first thing to point out is how high up the agenda this uh, housing affordability is for, for voters. So we, we asked a range of um, issues through um, you know, reducing crime, um, improving Medicare, uh, building more public housing, uh, cost of living and so on. Housing affordability was scored the second or third highest depending on the age group that we asked. Yeah. Um, so it's so in the top three concerns across, across the population. The board, across yep. the board, yeah. It is um, very stratified across the age groups um, with you know older people who tend to be own a, own a house without mortgage being less concerned and young people just entering the, the rental market being most concerned. But yeah, across the board, it's number th it was the third issue out of 10 mm. that we tested. Mm. Um, and that's really, I think, indicates where we're heading towards in terms of... Um, maybe the next federal election yeah. um, being a housing affordability and, and worth pointing out too that this survey was done in December, there's been three more rate rises since then, so we would expect those concerns to be even higher today, yeah. despite the fact we got a bit of a reprieve uh, in the April RBA decision to hold rates at least for one month. Well, yeah, but <laughs> we also, the other side of the coin is that we have a whole bunch of people on their fixed rate mortgages yeah. about to fall off the mortgage cliff, mm. including myself, so mm. in June my rate will go from 2.3% to... Eh, Six? Yeah. Who knows? Um, but yeah, it's not going to be a comfortable Scary stuff. month. See me about a pay rise, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, clearly um, it's going to be an intellectual issue. Mm. 
Um, and what we found when we asked swing voters how important it was for them was that for swing voters it was enormously important. So for you, as an example, for your typical liberal voter, um, housing affordability was regarded as a, as a key issue by 55% of the, the liberal voter population. But for liberal swing voters, it goes up to over 80%. Yeah. Yeah, it's an enormous issue for them. And as I said at the outset, we're seeing this now starting to play out at the ballot box. We're seeing, finally, politicians think, oh, why, why aren't young people voting the way they used to? Mm. Could it be something to do with the fact that we've pulled the rug out from under them on the social uh, mobility ladder, and housing is the biggest part of that, along with the insecure jobs that they have, and the two things are not divorced, as you showed in yeah. the, research, the research that you did recently. Um, the divorce of wage growth from land prices has really taken off in the last 20 years. Yeah, and it's that's, that's a, it's a, it's a two-pronged story, right? You've yeah. got the house prices spiralling out of control, but you've also got wage stagnation, particularly for younger homes, like mm -hmm. home builders, or whatever you want to call it, that younger demographic. You know, you, you're so much less likely to be on a, a permanent contract. Yeah. You're not seeing um, your wages linked to CPI or any other sort of inflation measure. Um, and you're just, you know, being stationary for 10 years, maybe yeah. in, that, in that lower um, yeah. wage bracket. There are so many problems with the housing market. We didn't turn up much good news at all in this survey, really. Um, it's, it's, we've got to a situation where uh, the, the laissez-faire approach to housing um, by successive governments in this country has created a situation in which only those at the very top of the market who own their own home or have investments, and more than one, really feel that they're benefiting from the housing market as it stands, and also a strong appetite in our survey for government intervention. Really strong, and that and this is the good news of the, yeah, of the survey. The only right? bit of good news. <laughs> this is the really There's good an news. appetite for change. Yeah, a huge appetite for change. So um, we asked people a range of um, policy. Well, we've suggested a whole bunch of policy options for them to consider, and public housing came out as far the, far and away the most popular of all the options. So over 70% of the population want to see more public housing construction. And that's great. And it's great for a number of reasons. You know, like uh, I'm a big fan of increasing public housing, uh, not just for Me housing. Too. Yeah, not just for housing um, people that need support, supported, you know, uh, rental costs, but also because it just in theory should cool off a whole bunch of the rental market as well. Um, we know that um, people at the bottom end of the rental market tend to uh, have the fewest options in terms of finding other kinds of accommodation. And that means that when, for example, uh, Commonwealth rent assistance is increased, mm. landlords at that bottom end of the market are able to scoop out a bigger share of that uh, Commonwealth rent assistance. That's right. It almost all goes at the bottom end straight into higher mm. rental costs. And my own research over the years into uh, the crisis of, of homelessness and risk of homelessness for older women shows that being in, uh, being in a private rental is the number one indicator for being in poverty and retirement. Yeah, yeah. So exactly. it's, it's a huge, huge issue. Yeah. Um, what's next for the Centre for Equitable Housing? There's a lot of data here for us to mine, and I know you've got big plans to do more with it. But uh, Yeah. Well, we, we have a fairly ambitious schedule of work over the next 12 months. We want to um, dig into this data a bit more and, and do some more complex analysis and use that to really tell some, some stories, I guess, mm -hmm. as to what the problems are and what people want to do about them. Um, we have a, a whole sort of train of research coming through on topics from the financialization of housing, offering a sort of historical macro narrative perspective through to much more targeted um, uh, 
publications. For example, we're going to be doing, my colleagues Lucy Tonkin and Margaret McKenzie will be publishing a paper on gender and housing. That's one thing we haven't touched on yet. Oh, we, we've been holding up. My passion too. <laughs> yeah, we've been holding our powder dry on this particular issue because the survey brought up incredible amount of gender disparity in housing affordability experience. I think I was the only one not surprised by that. Yeah, yeah. well I was, I think, yeah, it was surprising in um, in how diverse and complex mm. the disadvantage was for women in the housing yeah. market. Yeah. So we've got that paper coming out next month, um, but really we should be, uh, yeah, we'll be pumping papers out from now until Christmas. We will, sure. and beyond, and lots of public engagement. Um, we will be hosting events and roundtables and Obviously, as you'd expect of a think tank, coming up with some policy ideas that we hope all levels of government might start to grapple with. Yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. <laughs> well, look, that's all we've got time for today, but thanks so much, Matt, for coming on and chatting. Thank, thank you, you for the amazing work you've done at the Centre for Equitable Housing. And thank you to our listeners for joining in. If you are interested in uh, reading the Centre for Equitable Housing survey, the Housing Monitor, head over to Per Capita's website, which is percapita.org.au, or the House Australian Housing Monitor is at housingmonitor.org.au, and as I said, all that data is freely available to be fiddled around with. So please join us next time when we continue to examine inequality and work towards a fairer Australia here at Per Capita for the next episode of Recap. This show is a production of Per Capita, the independent progressive think tank dedicated to fighting inequality in Australia. And we're committed to providing ad-free and editorially independent content too. We'd like to acknowledge that this podcast was recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri Woi Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation, whose lands were never ceded, and we pay our respects to their elders past and present.